Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome debut writer Amy Turner to talk about her memoir, On the Ledge, out and available this September and published by She Writes Press. In addition to talking about the memoir, drawing the scope around the narrative and mining your own life for material, we will chat about coming to writing later in life, working with this women-only press, marketing a book, and more. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out. If the show has boosted your writing in some way, or if you've gotten some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach back out to us. We appreciate it. On with the show. Amy Turner, welcome. Oh, thanks so much. It's it's wonderful to be here. So one of my not infrequent recurring themes on the show is lawyers turned writers, of which I am one too. So although you stuck with the practice of law far longer than I did, so congratulations on that. My my question always to former lawyers or former professional anythings is what that career gave you and and what perhaps you had to overcome to be a writer because I found you know in my own situation a lot of that legal writing kind of got in the way for a while and so you had to to kind of relearn things so I I was just wondering about your experience in that and making that transition oh I I like that question and I'm I'm not sure congratulations are in order I probably (laughs) should have made the transition earlier but that was just a it took a certain emotional self-awareness for me to finally make the transition but in terms of what I took away from it, I mean, on the positives, I guess, being a lawyer, that certain having to write very clearly and precisely and looking at a situation and breaking it down to its component parts, you know, making sure that there's a lot of clarity in the writing so that there's no doubt (laughs) on the uh, reader's part of what I mean, because of course, you know, within law, you want to give your interpretation and not convey that it's open to many interpretations. So that precision and clarity, I think, helped me. Mm-hmm. But as you found, I think I say somewhere in my memoir, it was like a mind wipe. All creative impulses just <laughs> disappeared. You know, when you're writing in law, you're not taking risks, you're not speculating, you're not imagining. You have to stick to the facts. And so to get that play, sort of playful quality, and I, by that I don't mean sort of silly, but that imaginative, speculative thought process, to get that back took really quite a while. And, um, you know, at some point I didn't think it was coming back. It eventually did, but that certainly was uh, an obstacle or a downside of, of being a lawyer. Yeah, now, I know your dad was a writer, and I can't remember if you were writing all the way along just kind of for yourself as a kid, or well, if that all kind of came a little bit later. Yes, actually, it came much later. Maybe this will be encouraging to writers who are older. But yes, my father was a writer, and honestly, he was not the best example of a writer because he was constantly blocked. And so you could see you know, it was a result of his depressions or it would trigger depressions. And it just seemed like the most laborious, difficult task. On the other hand, writing was prized above all else in our family. You know, the being published in the New Yorker, which he never accomplished, it was the holy grail. So it was at, at once, you know, everybody, our my siblings and my ambition to be writers, on the other hand, it appeared to be totally fraught. So I thought, you know, in college I was writing and I enjoyed it, but I mean, I I got satisfaction from it, but I always hit some kind of wall. I just couldn't get beyond a certain point and I didn't fully understand it. And I put it aside and, you know, wrote a little for my own sake, but just couldn't get beyond that block until, as my memoir talks about, 
I don't recommend this for struggling writers. I got hit by a truck and recovered, but somehow at that age and with the self-awareness I had at that point and the random shocking event of this accident just opened a channel in me and I was able to write and get beyond that block. So that's a summary of my writing history. Well, this opens a nice door for introducing the memoir. And I thought maybe you could sort of lay the foundation for us and, and take us into a little bit so we, we kind of know the, the scope of what this memoir covers, and then sure. that will set the stage for talking about it. Sure. I, I guess, you know, in terms of craft and writing, I have two inciting incidents, and we can talk later about coming to that. But the the memoir begins with uh, the the prologue, which refers to this event that occurred when I was four and a half. My father was on a business trip. He climbed out onto the ledge of his hotel room. This was in New Haven and threatened to jump. And some passerby priests came over to see if they could help. One of them went up to his room. Another stayed on the sidewalk in case last rites were necessary. And after 20 minutes, he persuaded my father to come inside. My father was immediately hospitalized and I didn't see him again for about 10 months. You know, at the time, I had no idea that this had occurred. I just knew one day my father was there and another day he wasn't. And I didn't learn the truth of that until I was 16. Then the other inciting incident is that when I was 55, I was crossing a crosswalk on a routine errand carrying some bag of dry cleaning and was struck by a pickup truck. Miraculously, I had no broken bones or internal injuries, but I was dragged 20 feet and it was, it was a trauma and I did have a physical recovery period. And the memoir is really the story of how that trauma in my, in my 50s leads me to investigate and kind of liberate myself from the constraints that had developed from that early incident involving my father. And when did you know after that, that truck incident that this, when did you kind of make that connection? When did you understand? Cause it sounds like that was the inciting event that kind of opened you up and allowed you to to start writing. But tell me a little bit about that, that process before you actually put fingers to keyboard or pen to paper, knowing and understanding that this was something that you needed to write about. Well, you know, a lot of it, didn't feel very conscious. I I felt very compelled, but, you know, as a lawyer, you you can appreciate this and so can other people. The next day I I was still in a, you know, total shock and fog, but I just knew I needed to write down the facts of the accident. It was too bizarre. It was too random. I thought, you know, I, I could wait sort of crazy thought, but I thought, you know, in a month I could be brain dead, maybe tomorrow I won't have any memory. And sort of that lawyer thing, get the facts down, you never mm-hmm. know what happened. So I did just write down all the facts so I could have them because so many kind of unusual things happened, just the idea of getting hit by a truck in a pedestrian crosswalks, mm-hmm. surprising enough. Anyway, so I had done that. And I didn't actually start writing the memoir until my brother died a month later, totally unexpectedly, which was another unexpected random event, which threw me for kind of, you know, an emotional, it's like an emotional collision. And I was writing a thank you note to a teacher who had attended his memorial. And I found myself writing about my brother and the accident because she knew knew something about that. And somehow these connections started bubbling up in me. And I began writing more about my past and childhood. And eventually it was beyond the bounds of a thank you note. So of course I sent that off. And then I just kept writing. I had no idea that I was actually writing what would become a memoir, but I simply felt I needed to get it down because I think I knew on some level that writing about the accident and the recovery was going to lead me somewhere that I was maybe going to figure out 
I was going to make meaning of that accident. And I had a feeling it was a key to something bigger. And I really didn't know what it was at the time. And so in the course of the recovery, I do through the acupuncture and some somatic therapies, do realize that the while processing the feelings of vulnerability I had in front of the truck were actually very familiar. And those feelings I'd had too as a four and a half year old. So in a way I was already writing. Some of these things happened. So it was a strange kind of a meta experience. You know, I was writing the memoir, then I was experiencing things and writing about the experiencing, but I couldn't write about the writing of it. So <laughs> right. it was kind of happening on a bunch of uh, uh, different levels. It is interesting to write to discover, but that that journalistic writing obviously is very, you know, journaling writing is obviously very different than craft art memoir writing. And so making that transition, I think, is also really interesting where you understand, OK, this this specific thing happened to me that's personal, but I have to make this something bigger, make it into a universal experience that others can relate to to make it a memoir. And I don't know if that was just iterations of writing through this to understand the universal themes that were emerging out of this that other people could relate to, or or if that's just organic, that the more you write personally, the more universal things kind of tend to become. Was that a matter of the revision process, do you think? Yes, I'm laughing to myself because I'll just start with an anecdote. At certain, fairly early on in the process, I had about 140 pages by then. I didn't have the structure, but I had something. And it was enough to get admitted to the summer Iowa Summer Writers Project. Enough for me to get accepted into uh, Hope Edelman's two-week memoir-length class. And I was, you know, got thrilled to be able to be there. And a lot of good writers in the class. And so when my piece got workshopped, you know, got a lot of nice comments. But then someone said, you know, it really picks up around this point. And I thought, oh, good. You know, that sounds positive. And I, when I got home, you know, I looked to see exactly what he's talking about. And, you know, it was page 133. <laughs> and so, you know, I knew, I already knew that I needed to make the stakes clearer and it needed, it needed structure, you know, that sort of the, the bones were there, maybe the flesh was there, but it needed a skeleton to hang on. So it did come in the revision process in terms of finding the structure. You know, I knew what the arc was, but I needed a structure to be able to do it because the reader was being forced to jump around in time so much that you felt as dizzy as I did. So talk, talk a little bit about that structure and finding it because you're right. I mean, I think, you know, memoirs are not autobiographies. It's, it's really a constrained bubble around a particular experience. And so, you know, certain things from life serve that and certain things from life certainly do not serve that. And so, you know, you have to understand what it is about your life that is getting to this central point that the memoir is trying to make. So talk a little bit about arriving at that structure and first, maybe what it was, <laughs> the how you decided what the structure was going to be. And then working through all of that, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. Oh, thank you. And I, I will say when, you know, we're talking, you were asking, before I get to that, asking, referring to the more general thrust of a memoir that it can't be totally personal. There has to be something a little more universal. You know, I knew I needed that, but I was really unclear whether I actually had something that was universal. And I was really nervous about, you know, writing around what, what the stakes really were for me. And the stakes were a question of identity and self-awareness and so forth. And I was, I was afraid that that wasn't enough. But when I finally just decided it is my story, it is what it is, and did that, then I, that helped me with kind of the narrative arc. But with the structure, as I said before, I, this flowed out of me and I was making a lot of connections and, you know, it was coherent, but I was jumping around in time so much in my head. I'm not a musician, but in my head, I, I had this vision of an image of sheet music where you see the, the stage, you know, the lines of notes for each instrument. And 
they're all being played at the same time and you see it all on the page. And I realize that's how I really see my life. There's the present, but at the same time, I, I have the past in me and I'm thinking about the future. So that's kind of how I was writing, trying to get it all on one page. But of course, that's impossible for a reader, impossible for a writer to do. So Hope Edelman, after that class, I realized I needed some instruction because my only writing instruction had been as a lawyer. So she helped me. You know, I, I retained her as a coach and it was the best thing I did in this process. And she said one day, well, Amy, why don't you do an A-line and a B-line? And the A-line is the accident, you know, serendipitous, the letters worked out. And the B-line is the backstory or Bronxville, you know, where I was raised. So I went back and took, you know, it just seemed totally daunting. You know, how am I going to break apart this manuscript <laughs> I had? Oh, my God. But I really trusted her and I knew I had a problem. So I took the manuscript and I literally, I went through it paragraph by paragraph, assigned it past or, you know, present near future, moving forward from the accident. And I'm not an organized person. (laughs) Each one, I, you know, gave green index cards for one line and, you know, red for the other and assigned them an index card and a A or B line, took a huge post-it note poster and just started placing them on the poster. And then there was a lot of rearranging and figuring out where all the cards went into one chapter. But once I'd done that, it it helped so much. And of course, after that, there was a fair amount of rearranging and revising and moving things around. But I had the basic idea and I I knew where I was going with it. So that's how I came to that structure. And did that process reveal to you holes where you were like, yes, I need more of my mother in here, or I wrote... 25 pages on summer camp that doesn't belong in here at all. Did did that kind of show you where you needed to fill in and where you needed to extract? Yes. And yes. And yes, where I needed to extract, I'll start with first. I remember somebody, or actually Hope said to me after reading a chapter, said, Amy, you've got to watch out here. Harold, who's my brother who died. Harold is a very compelling character. And if you don't watch out, he's going to take over your memoir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, you know, I could write his story. So I had to be careful with that. And then, yes, I found, you know, with my mother was sort of the different characters, so to speak, in the memoir, I had to space it out a little so that it wasn't just, you know, profile, then a profile, then another profile. Also, and, you know, also, it this was a hard thing to learn, but I was grateful that I, I was taught this and people insisted, you know, there were some stories I was attached to and I thought they were really important, but I came to realize after it was pointed out to me numerous times, they just don't advance the story. They may be great anecdotes, funny, or, you know, somewhat illuminating, but if you've already dealt, shown that characteristic of a person or dealt with that event, you don't need three scenes to do that. You know, take the one scene because you want the reader to keep turning the page. It took a while, but I did come to be able to read something myself and say, yeah, no, this is dragging us down, not necessary. So as I'm looking at the memoir, every chapter has a title, which is, I think, both nice for both reader and writer. And they're relatively short. I mean, there are some that are longer than others, but some of them are, you know, just a couple of pages. And Mm -hmm. I always wonder if that is a nice way, it's a nice way for me to kind of trick yourself into saying, okay, I only need to write this five page chapter about Isabella, or, you know, I only need to write this thing about my brother. And it kind of gives you, I think, a smaller chunk way. Of course, it all has to hang together. And as you're talking about organizing it, but I don't know if that was a way and the chapter titles were another way for you to kind of keep yourself straight in the narrative and trick yourself of, you know, I only have to write, you know, five pages or 10 pages instead of, you know, 250 pages. Yes. I And I, I think I sort of came through this, you know, through the 
back door or something because because in that original manuscript I had a really a, you know a lot of, of what was in the final manuscript in terms of content of course it was rewritten a million times but so I kind of knew what are these important things I had I want to write about so I had sort of the 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 seeds for almost all those chapters mm. in this disorganized manuscript and so when I created the structure I knew okay I already have three pages on this I've got to just put it in time you know ground the reader in time and I maybe need some more detail so I feel like I wasn't just setting out at the time I figured out the structure and the actual chapters I already kind of had a bit for each for each chapter someone did point out to me you know Amy you can't go from age, you know, 28 to 48, <laughs> you know, and ha- all of a sudden you have teenage sons and or you have five-year-old sons and now they're adults. And, you know, I really, I, the only thing I didn't want to write about, about myself was that early childhood period, you know, was actually the delivery of my older son and mm-hmm. some of that the early childhood conflict I had and I I thought I could avoid it (laughs) (laughs) right nope and so that in answer to your question that was the one time when I sat down and said okay you've got to write a chapter on this and just do it and and that was hard I'm, I'm really glad I did it I in writing memoir and I'm sure in writing fiction you know you end up learning about yourself and and it helps to get it out onto the page well, I was going to ask about that, what those chapters were that were really the sticking points for you. So it sounds like that was one of them. And and working through that and knowing when you've gone deep enough. And sometimes, I mean, there's sometimes writers who <laughs> almost go too deep mm-hmm. and uh, people are like, oh, pull back. But uh, you rarely hear that. What you really hear more often is you've got you've to keep digging. You've got to keep excavating. And I don't know if Hope Edelman was was sort of a source for that or other readers that you had that would tell you not deep enough yet, keep going, or, you know, how you, how you gauge that? Well, for, you know, hope and what, you know, when I workshop things or had other readers, well, I'll give hope as, as an example, but that, that did come up a lot. And I will say, actually, in those initial drafts, there was a lot of humor in it. And it was pointed out to me that as I'm writing a paragraph, I'm, I'm getting to something you know, I'm digging, <laughs> digging. <laughs> and then I hit something and I go straight to some glib line, some one liner, some, you know, funny anecdotes, something. And when that was pointed out to me, how often I did that, I really was shocked. Oh my God, mm. I, this is such an avoidance technique. So I had to go back and everywhere that I was being funny, thought I was being so funny. I had to really look and say, am I doing this as a distraction? Am I doing this to just kind of show off? Am I doing this to give myself a break from the content? Or, you know, is it funny? And is it appropriate? And is it a nice little break for the reader? So that was really, really telling for me. And now, of course, yes, I don't know if that answered the question, but that was a big one. Oh, yeah. I know, digging deep. And and other times I would think I had done such a great job in really getting to the bottom of it. One of the issues in my book, of course, is coming to terms with looking at the photographs of my father on the ledge because it had unbeknownst, I think, to my mother. We knew it was on the front page of the New York City newspapers, but it was in, I don't know, more than 80 newspapers across the country. Hmm. And I researched the photographs and it was very difficult for me to look at them, but I couldn't get to the bottom of exactly why that was so hard. (laughs) I thought I'd gotten to it and I get my manuscript back and there's a little note. I don't, this is good, but I don't think you're quite there yet. I'm like, darn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It really took a while. And I will say too, sometimes it's a matter of the writing you know, sitting there and really trying to go deeper. But I also learned that some of it is just a matter of living. You know, maybe I just needed some time, something else to happen, something that I wasn't going to be able to beat it out of me.
We'll be right back with more from Amy Turner and On the Ledge in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show and have learned anything along our over 24 years or so, thousands of episodes, anything that sent you closer to your own publication, whatever it is, check out the Patreon page. In return for your support, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts as well as some other goodies. Visit www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Amy Turner talking about On the Ledge. There are so many themes in here about mental illness, identity formation, trauma, anxiety. You know, it's a kind of a lot of thematic balls in the air at once. And I was wondering if that gave you issues as I mean, there's the story to tell, which is just a, you know, a narrative, but there's the bigger thing to make out of all of this, which is how did this early impact affect my identity and create all of this anxiety later in life, which I think those are the universal themes. I mean, that I've never been through anything like this, but I certainly understand anxiety. I certainly understand depression. I certainly understand trauma. And so when you had that many themes in play, did you concern yourself with, okay, I need to address this theme now or this, did you ever color code it by thematic incident or was it all color coding it by narrative anecdotal incidents? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah, that I need to just think for a minute, see if I did. I had to, the issue of coming to terms, looking at the photograph and really, which really, in a sense, was, you know, coming to terms with the incident. I did go back and look at that. I probably did color code it or highlight to see, you know, when I started talking about it and did I create some kind of action there or was I just constantly saying, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. Was I moving it along? You know, was there some motion in it? So I know I went through the manuscript to see, you know, what was that arc in terms of, of that? And when should I start it and how, and when should I resolve it, you know, not to let it go on too long. As far as the exact themes, you know, I think I knew that really that the story was just dealing with the impact of that incident of my father's on my entire life. Although it's not that long and complicated. I mean, I just take segments of my life. So I had to make sure that say the theme of anxiety and depression or that hypervigilance, I was pulling scenes from my life over the course of my life that illuminated that or was an example of, of how that anxiety or affected me. So I did, you know, I couldn't drop, start talking about it as in law school, as a nervous law student, I, you know, of course I had to have it in my childhood, my adolescence and so forth. So in that way, I think I was tracking it. Now, a lot of the characters, um, characters, they're real people. So your mother, your father, your brother have all passed. And I was wondering if that made it easier (laughs) for you to write about them, that they're not, you know, they're ghosts in your in your mind. I'm sure they're very present in your mind, but they're not you know, physically sitting in in uh, New York waiting to read this book. Yeah. I don't know if that made it easier. You know, if it if it made it more liberating to write about them, maybe it made it more difficult. I don't know. But talk about writing about them in the aftermath of their deaths and whether or not that played some role in how you were able to talk about them. Well, yes, I, it was definitely easier. I'll talk about my parents first, and I'll, I'll talk about my brother. In terms of my parents. It was much easier because I just didn't, I didn't have to worry, obviously, about them reading it and being hurt by anything I had to say. And, you know, on the other hand, had they been alive, maybe there were some some conversations I might have had and and those might have added to the book. But I don't think I could have done it when they were alive, or at least maybe I could have been writing it. But not publishing it or showing mm. it to them. So yes, that that made it much it made it much easier. I think they would have been okay with it, but I don't know. As far as my brother, yes, it was much easier. And the fact that he had 
died, his death was really part of my story in this whole post-accident and post-accident recovery and so forth and what I, you know, learned. So I felt that was, you know, instrumental in my family. So even if maybe something had happened where it was a near death with him and he didn't die, I think I would have definitely included it. My other siblings, you know, I made a, somebody asked me recently, oh, you must have talked to your siblings a lot. And I said, no, I didn't. (laughs) Uh, My older sister, five years older, and my younger brother, Jim. And, you know, we're all writers of a sort. And, you know, I already have, and it's a screaming internal critic. And I just thought if I told them I was going to also add their voices to the chorus, even though (laughs) they wouldn't be criticizing me, but I would make it up to myself. I didn't want that. And I really wanted this to be my story of how my that incident and my childhood affected me. And if I started having engaged conversations with them about their memories, I I wasn't going to stay focused on my story. And I was not writing a biography of our family or a portrait of our family. So I did on the when I had decided to publish it, I sent it to both my siblings and I am so grateful and, and blessed. They were so generous. They were so supportive and had no issues. And then my sister, who, who was became my biggest cheerleader on it, actually passed away unexpectedly. So mm. that's, bitter, that's bittersweet. But had she passed away earlier, there might have been a chapter <laughs> on, on growing up with her but maybe another book, but uh, <laughs> that, that's the story of the siblings. And your husband is very present in the book. And I don't know if that, you know, if, if, especially because he's living right alongside of you, you know, in real life. So I don't know if he was kind of a ghost in your head as well. I feel extremely fortunate in, the, in this regard because Ed known him since I was in, uh, in law school, you know, my early twenties. And he had seen he watched me from the beginning, you know, talking about, oh, I wish I could write. Oh, someday I want to write. And he knew that was a really a deep, a deep, deep desire for me. And once it started coming out, he was so incredibly supportive because I was working as a teacher. So I could only really do my writing on the weekends. And he would clear the decks for me mm. because he said, I've never seen you happier you know the creativity is amazing and I would read all my pages to him the you know the good news is he was really willing to read and to listen and be a very good you know listener the bad news was he became a really good editor and he'd say no that doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) damn lawyers (laughs) yes yeah yeah exactly yes and I you know again it wasn't a I talk about those themes in terms of how it affected our relationship. But again, it wasn't really a a memoir about my marriage. So well, going back to talking about your parents and their passing away, I mean, one of the, the major themes of the book is how much your mother insisted that you tiptoe around your father and his mental illness to not upset him. So I can't even imagine what her reaction would be to writing, you know, putting this out publicly I just think, you know, to your point of it being much easier to write about them after they're now gone, you know, I mean, she she seemed so invested in maintaining sort of a quiet atmosphere around him. And she seemed like such a force in her own right of this competitive tennis player who, you know, had sort of an image, I think, to to maintain. So yeah, those are those are large psychological giants, I think, in your in your could have been in your mind to to navigate around. Uh, yes, definitely. And I think by the time, you know, of her death, she might have, I mean, maybe, well, let me say this. There was, my parents were very supportive. So I do think there was a strong possibility that even if she wasn't thrilled with some of the portrayals or my view, that she would be really happy for me. I mean, she was a, a generous enough and warm enough person and loved us enough to know that, you know, her children's happiness was was important too. I don't know. I don't think there was a lot for her to argue about in this memoir because she would be very clear about it. She believed that it was action 
action was important, that you didn't get mired in your feelings and a lot of discussion of emotion and expression. You looked at the problem and then you took action. So, you know, that's the, uh, the truth of it. And I think that was an important part of her sobriety. She just mentioned that she, when my father went into the hospital, she was an active alcoholic and miraculously, and I, I have so much respect for this. She somehow found the strength six weeks later to go to AA and have her last, you know, have her last drink. She was a bit of a mess for several years, you know, as she, you know, learned the program and, you know, got as her sobriety got more mature and so forth. But that was part of, I think, her staying sober. You know, she's not going to be able to deal. She had her own emotions that she was trying to sort out and not allow those emotions to trigger her to drink. And so she wasn't going to have the capacity to be sitting around listening to her children's emotions. And then the fear that something could lead my father to become suicidal again. The only way was to just to not allow us, not allow this sort of free expression of emotion. It, it was too, it was too risky for her yeah. sobriety and for her, his stability. When we got older as adults, of course, it was a little different, but even so, she right. was a flush. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about publication and all of all of those fun issues. So you have your memoir done. Hope Edelman sounds like she was was one of the major writing teachers. Did you take other writing courses along the way or have a writing group along the side or other readers? Or tell me a little bit about your writing community that you created as you were writing this. Well, so this, you know, very starting out, as I was saying before, it was just this very sort of organic process. I just started writing and about 50 pages in, I had a friend who's a, a professor, taught memoir and so forth, and showed it to her and another editor and said, you know, is this just an extended diary entry or is there something here? And they thought there was something there. So I just kept writing. And um, the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, which now I think is still mostly online, I, they may have some in-person courses, was really instrumental for me. I went out there and took two classes. One was a weekend class with Hope and mm -hmm. one was a weekend long class, week long class with someone else whose name I don't remember. Mm -hmm. And I just, that's when I realized how much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so then I went back and that that really helped me. Then I took some classes. I had heard that Sarah Safian was a wonderful teacher at Iowa and she was teaching at the Sarah Lawrence Writing mm -hmm. Institute. So I went up and took a class with her and those were, and then I read, you know, memoirs and books about writing memoir, but those classes were really important to know what I didn't learn, what I, I didn't know and learn right. on the job, so to speak. But I didn't, I really, I think one reason I, was comfortable writing was that I what it wasn't setting out to publish. I didn't sit down saying, okay, I'm writing a book and it's got to be good enough to be published and had no pressure, no pressure on myself. I just wanted it to be as good as it could be. And in the end, you know, I thought, well, it's eight and a half by 11. It could fit in my desk drawer. I could just <laughs> close it, you know, and just forget about it. But, you know, it kept calling to me. And so then I, decided to publish it and I can get into that story if yeah tell us that story yeah so how did it go from and I think that's just to point out I just think that's a great way to write is I'm not right you know I don't have any pressure on me to publish this I you know as you say I'm just going to make it as good as it can possibly be what what a great way to go into it so then you have it and and how do you decide that you are going to try and pursue publication so I uh, oh, and I had forgotten to mention that I did do that memoir writing workshop. And then we had a reunion that one of our members organized, which is wonderful. And so I had spent another week with these colleagues from that, and they were very helpful. And, you know, everyone there was talking about publishing and you get enough around these classes, enough people and everybody's talking about it. And so started thinking about it. And then actually, I knew that the last third just needed another once over. I needed somebody to look at it just to make sure that I had the arc right. And so I knew Brooke Warner from just from around, you know, from classes and people talking about her. And so she 
coached me with the last third. She read it and she's the one who said I had to write about the birth of my son, which I did. Hmm. At the end, I just sort of offhand said, well, you know, you think she writes press would want to publish this? And she said, oh, absolutely. Sure. You know, so I just knew that I'm obviously not a celebrity. I'm not well known that if I could find a publisher or an agent and then a publisher, it was going to take a long time. And I knew I didn't have the stomach or the strong enough ego to withstand all the rejection. And I just wasn't going to put myself through it. So I was fortunate enough to be able to do it. I thought, well, I'm going to take this opportunity. And she writes had a good reputation. And yeah, how did you come to know about them? Well, keep mentioning hope, but actually at that reunion that we had, we were talking about publishing possibilities and she mentioned it as a company that publishes women. And then I'd seen Brooke's name, you know, she teaches memoir classes and magic of memoir and her name is out there. So I just began to see it. Um, And I think I took a, a class, an online class with her possibly. And so that's how I came across it. And did you shop it with other, with other publishers? You know, no, I didn't. I started, I did, you know, went to a few places and pitched a few agents and I just thought, I just can't do this. And I just, I thought eventually it might get published, but it was going to take years. And I just, I just didn't have it in me. So tell me a little bit about the marketing, because so many writers, even with big publishing houses are charged Mm. with doing their own marketing and platforms and how you get the word out and all of that. And I wonder if you have insights. I know you're early in the process, but if you have insights about how to do that. Yeah, that dreaded platform. That was another reason I knew, you know, that I, I wasn't a surefire candidate for publication because I didn't have a platform. You know, if, if you're a writer who loves to write, and you're very comfortable promoting yourself, you are way ahead, I think, of a lot of writers because you you do have to be comfortable promoting yourself. And so I hired a PR person and that's a, you know, education in itself. I'm really glad I did because I had no idea about how to do that. So that's Caitlin Hamilton Summy and she's been wonderful. So they're doing PR. And then I think also writers need, in terms of budgeting, you know, think about terms of their publicity, but also in terms of actually directly marketing, because there's so much to learn and know now. It used to be Facebook ads, now it's Amazon ads and understanding how that works. So it is, it's as complicated and involved as, as you have the tolerance for. I think the secret is to figure out, you know, what you're comfortable doing. And then if there's an area you're not comfortable, you know, what you're willing to push yourself to do and what you have the resources to do, and then focus on those and try to tune out the other noise because it's really endless what you could be doing. And just keeping up the social media takes time, let alone everything else. Right. And you hired a publicist. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to do that. Well, it was really the conventional wisdom. I mean, she writes press, recommends it, and almost everybody I know who's being published by them has some kind of PR help. They do the press releases and contact the press and podcasts and radio shows, newspapers and so forth to get coverage. So I talked to a number of Uh, she writes authors to see who they had used. And there are a number of, you know, different firms people use. And I just thought this one would be the best fit for me. Smaller and a lot of personal attention. And Caitlin's also a novelist. So it's nice to have a writer. Yeah. Who understands it from a a writer's sensibility. And do you organize your own, uh, will there be a book tour of any kind, or do you go to independent bookstores and kind of pitch, or do you do you do that kind of on the yeah. ground stuff? Um, sure. You know, Caitlin's doing some of that. And I'm, I'm out in, uh, I'm in the East Hampton, Eastern and Long Island, New York. And so, you know, in my local area, I, I know people just because I've lived here for so long. So some of that I'm doing myself. It's just easier because I know them. So I set up 
my launch, you know, Caitlin gives me advice, but I organized my launch, which will be at a bookstore in Sag Harbor on September 16th and an event at the library. And she's working on events for me elsewhere. And yeah, so it's a bit of a combination on the very hyper local. I'm doing that work. Yes. With her. And in terms of research, I don't know if there was a lot of research that you had to, I mean, I know you were researching your father and finding all of these newspaper articles where he appeared. Were there other areas in which, because there's, you know, there's a fair amount of psychological information, acupuncture therapies, you know, different things that you went through on your own. I don't know if research was any sort of component of this that you also had to tackle. Well, I mean, there were some sort of straightforward areas of research, as you say, just the articles on my father. And then I had to go back and kind of research, almost kind of fact check things I knew, but I wasn't sure that I had it right. So my father's involvement in a hospital strike in Bronxville in 1965, it was a civil rights slash labor campaign. And then also he was involved in Daniel Berrigan's group, Kairos, which is an anti-nuclear activist group. And mm-hmm. I needed the details on that and the dates and so forth. So I researched that. Now you mentioned the Chinese medicine and other therapies. I, I should say, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained as a therapist or in any way, you know, Chinese medicine or any somatic, you know, body modalities, therapy modalities, did need to have enough information so that the reader knew what I was talking about. So I did some research on body-oriented somatic, you know, approaches to be able to explain to the reader what I thought was going on. But honestly, it made me really appreciate the people who are experts in those fields because it's so subtle and it seems complicated. And I was really giving sort of the basics of it. So there was a context, but ultimately my recovery and the path I was on, on some level just had a, felt like a magical, almost magical because it was so subtle and I couldn't possibly understand exactly what was going on with me physiologically but I did enough research to give the context. Well, this is wonderful. Tell us a little bit about writing advice. You, I know you took a bunch of these memoir classes, writing advice that you got along the way that particularly sustained you, or you know, I don't know if there's going to be a second uh, book in progress, whether fiction or memoir, some of the, the things that you learned in the writing of this that you will take with you into the next project or anything that you can, you can tell us that has been particularly useful to you. Well, most useful. Actually, there's a, a whole universe of things and what's <laughs> right. most helpful. But I mean, one is being able to silence the internal critic and just sitting down and writing and trying to let you know everything else go. I, on the other hand, I think in my next book, I'll make sure I'm taking certain breaks because it, it can be an arduous process, especially with memoir, if you're getting into difficult topics. And I think for me, always having learned, you know, to try to really understand what your story is, and then have the scenes and the anecdotes and the events hang from that. And then I'll, but I should preface this by saying, the, as far as I'm concerned, the best thing to do is just get it all out. Because the revision process is fantastic. I mean, it can be annoying and frustrating, but it's always there and it can be endless. So you don't have to worry in that first draft of this isn't any good or I don't, what am I doing? Just get it down and you can always go back. And I think, I think actually that's what I'll take with me. Yeah, that, yeah, there is a definite amount of freedom. And especially if you're not working on a book contract or, you know, you've got a deadline that you're trying to meet with publishers you've got the time. So just make it as good as you possibly can make it. Right. What, what was the time period over which you started and finished, would you say? Well, I would say I started in, you know, writing that letter, say in, in 2012 or the end of, tw- uh, the accident occurred in 2010. So I would say about a year and a half later, I found myself writing and it was coming out of me. And it was finally 2022, I would say 20. 
20, you know, the publishing process and with COVID and all of that, it's really kind of been done for a year and a half in terms of the decision to publish and the commitment to publish. Mm -hmm. So from eight years and within that, there was some time I took off and did kind of got involved in politics, but it was over the course of eight years, some of which I was working full time. So, yeah. Well, and that's probably useful too, to just be able to set it aside, come back to it with sort of fresh eyes, see things anew and pick up and start writing again. I mean, I, I do think work benefits from, you know, being able to gel a little bit in your mind and see what's uh, working and what isn't. I I agree. And people had said that to me, just put it aside for a while. And I was nervous about doing that because I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to pick it up again. And how am I going to remember and get back into, but you absolutely do. I mean, like the cliche of riding a bike, you absolutely do. And I, I do agree. It's, it's helpful to get sort of that breathing room, some space. Well, tell us how we find you online so people can follow you and, uh, and the book's journey. If you're, I know you're on social media. Thank you so much. Uh, my website is amyturnerauthor.com and uh, Amy Turner Author on Facebook. I think Amy Turner Writer on Writer. No, Amy Turner 2000 on Instagram. Mm, good. Okay. Amy Turner Writer on Twitter. But uh, you can certainly events and the books, that, you know, information about it's on my website and places to purchase and it's available everywhere. Fantastic. Amy Turner, the book is on the ledge. It is out September 22nd. Uh, no, actually September 6th. September 6th. Coming yes. so fast. Coming yep. so fast. That's great. That's yep. great. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's really been fun to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Amy Turner, the book On the Ledge. It is out and available September 6th. It is published by She Writes Press. In addition to our Patreon pages, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at www.travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.